Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. I've got an awesome guest lined up for you today, but before we jump into that, I'd love you to jump on iTunes and give the Geared for Growth Property Investing Podcast a rating to help us reach more property investors and help them to achieve the goals that hopefully you're achieving as well. Let's get into today's episode. We're talking to an absolute data genius, a man in rarefied air with his knowledge of property data, analytics, machine learning, and the list goes on. He's worked for CoreLogic, for JLL, for PriceFinder. He's the founder of Suburbs Trends and the co-host of the Property Nerds podcast as well. None other than Kent Lardner. Now we talked to Kent about property data, how to really look at statistically important data and the pitfalls in relying on things like medians when you're doing your analysis. Kent is a real knowledge source and a very generous chap as well. So he's really generous with his time and answering all the questions. I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I do. Here's Kent. Kent Lardner, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thank you. Good to be here. It's long overdue. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a long, long time, and I think it'll be very soon uh, before people realise why. But Kent, if people haven't come across you before, can you let us know who you are and what you specialise in? I specialise in property data. I play around with it, I collect it, I analyse it, and I churn it out and deliver it to people to use in many different ways. Um, some of those clients that use the data include uh, you know, valuation companies or banks, all the way through to investors. And a lot of stuff that you produce might be sort of hidden behind the scenes from working for, you know, buyers, agencies, companies, as you say, but your main, uh, I guess, public-facing interface is suburb trends, right? It has been, and I've created something new specifically for the investor audience called The Property Nerds. So that's uh, releasing and being launched in January. So um, mid-January, that'll be out there. So I don't know when our podcast will be released, but uh, The Property Nerds is the new site being created specifically for investors. But um, talking specifically about my background with suburb trends, very much designed as a data and content company or service for a lot of businesses. So uh, a lot of enterprise clients um, I I support through Suburb Trends. Awesome. And the Property Nerds website is live. I was there this morning and on Suburb Trends as well, just to just to dig in a little bit, um, a little bit more. Uh, before we dive into the data and all of the stuff that investors can get from those platforms. Give us a bit of dirt on young Kent. What were the posters on the bedroom wall growing up? Yeah, I, look, my heroes uh, as a kid, I, I had Graham Langlands. So if you're an NRL fan and you're old like I am, you would have remembered Graham Langlands. So I'd say Artie Beetson and Graham Langlands were, were up there. Uh, uh, also, uh, Muhammad Ali, he was a biggie for me. Um, and Evil Knievel, there you go. So it's, it was a, and pretty much you could say any kid my age, had the same set of heroes. What happened to Evil? Because I know the family are still supporters of extreme stunts and that sort of stuff. I assume that he's long past it. I think he is, and uh, I think it was a Netflix documentary that pretty much had undone everything that I thought, you know, so he was um, not the nice person I thought he was. 
Oh, well. Yeah. So you know, I'll strike him from the list. Now it's down to now it's down to three. <laughs> Good. <laughs> what about property? How did you first get started with property and what was your first investment, Ken? Yeah, my um, fascination with property um, started when I worked for uh, Gemworth Financial. Back in the day, it was uh, originally it was called Housing Loans Insurance Corporation. Then it was acquired by General Electric or GE. And they um, knocked on my door and said, look, come in, we, we want to digitise um, this business. And it was right at that time when the mortgage market really started to take off around 1998. So that's when I, I started. I was heading up the, um, the uh, underwriting team there and we were processing something like eight or 900 valuations a day. And what I quickly uh, uh, determined was that we needed a better way to understand market risk and property risk. So the company agreed to send me off to Canada uh, and the US and learn from some uh, experienced, wise old men who could teach me how automated valuations work or AVMs. Uh, And then I went back to school to study statistics. So um, that was really the driver was to uh, better understand these uh, valuations that were flowing through to us and the underwriters were trying to process and understand valuations that were in another state in a market they they weren't familiar with so um, that by creating some some data and analytics solutions around that we could we could benchmark and test what we were seeing through those valuations Um, the second part of your question was my first investment was a a townhome in Wellington Point up in Queensland. Um, so it was out near the point and uh, you could walk down to the water's edge and it was quite lovely. Uh, I bought that as a, an owner-occupied uh, property without any idea of you know, keeping it as an investment. And then I moved out and moved back to Sydney and I did rent it out. It was a disaster. Really? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> this is crazy. This is a bit of Carl Jung synchronicity. So I was up in Brisbane. I thought I'll just go for a drive past and have a look at the property. And I drove past and I noticed all these windows smashed and the doors off. And literally a week before, the uh, the partner of the tenant had gone a bit crazy and smashed my property to pieces. And the real estate agent was busy trying to work out how to smooth things over without telling me. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, isn't that, great? Little, isn't that great? Isn't that great? away. And yeah, yeah, because, you know, the, the tenant was not at fault. It wasn't her fault, and she was lovely. It was a crazy boyfriend. So you could understand, I could understand the conundrum, but there was a legal obligation, you know, and it wasn't met by that agent. So it was a bad experience. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a good <laughs> one a, at all. It's a horrible story, though. I mean, yeah, imagine, imagine some crazed guy, you know, tearing doors off and busting windows. Yeah. Not nice for the lady. That's pretty terrible. I think my old man's first investment, he um, he actually found out that it was being operated at a, as a brothel and he wasn't told because one of the key participants was the daughter of the real estate agent. So that was interesting. Oh, and he had to go with his biggest two mates and evict people and apparently found some teeth. So um, maybe you guys should share a beer. <laughs> you got some things great. in common. Found some teeth. Found some teeth just sort of scattered about here and there. Oh, that's 
That's wonderful. Like as in false teeth that somebody had taken out whilst No, I think these were individual units that perhaps either fell out or were taken out. Who knows? Oh, that's wonderful. That's quite they never nice. talk about these stories on realestate.com, do they? No, no, but I think, it, <laughs> I think they should. It was terrific. Yeah. So, yeah, that was my story. I don't think it's as good as the teeth story, though. <laughs> what about your sort of background? Obviously, you, you talked about statistics. You're a, a property guru. You're a research guru. I mean, what's what's your sort of professional skill set? I, I know that you are across machine learning. You know your JSONs from your JavaScripts, all that sort of stuff. Give us, you know, put yourself in a box for us. Yeah, my box would be uh, statistics, Um you know, property data analytics and statistics. Um, so I, I studied, uh, well, statistics were multiple units underneath uh, a Bachelor of Commerce course. Um, so I just cherry-picked all these st- statistics units there, and um, that's what I've been doing for the, whatever they call it, the 10,000 hours for the last 20 years is um, building uh, automation, automated valuation models, uh, focusing on uh, collection and and processing of, of data and and more recently in the in more recent years I've, I've really learned a lot more in more recent years than I've ever learned is uh, packaging up a lot of panel series time series data a lot of census data and a lot of the government data sets pairing that up with property data and and pushing that through machine learning so um, I've done a number of online courses now with machine learning and a lot of hands-on practice and it's, it's been fascinating to see what you can actually predict um, six to 12 months into the future. So um, I'm very uninitiated in, in machine learning, uh, but what I assume is that you can get data um, and all you need is something to be measured and then uh, a time frame. So you could say April it's one and May it's two and blah, blah, blah. And then you can get a different data set. Let's say it's ABS data versus some weird obscure data like um, coffee cup sales in Brunswick Heads. Yes. Um, you, and then you can, you're actually teaching the machine that, um, one, or are you looking for correlations or, or is the machine learning that, that they're finding that, that, or they're helping to predict because they know that it moves in concert? How, how does it work? Yeah, correct. So if you, if you think of the old X, Y axes and some dots and a line through the dots, it's doing that thousands and thousands of times. So it's looking for different rules or nodes that says, uh, under these situations or in this situation where prices are high and rents are low or whatever, or unemployment's high or any of these other hundreds of data sets, uh, it can pivot on those nodes and it, it does that multiple times and, and builds the optimal mo- model for those conditions. So uh, one of the, the, the downsides of these machine learning models is it's really what they call, it's overfitted. It's fitted within an inch of its life. So as soon as you start to put data in there, after it's been trained and you put data in there that's outside of the bounds, um, you can get some crazy results. But when you know all of those limitations and you've got a good practical handle on the data, it's a pretty powerful toolkit. Um, so yeah. machine learning does probably two, two good things, I think, is uh, it, it does give you the models. It, it does the work that you used to pay. You know, I had a team of, of um, quants, as we called them, uh, at CoreLogic, and, you know, they were well-paid people who would produce maybe one model every, you know, two or three weeks if I was lucky. 
Now I can set the machine off and running um, and have a, a couple of models done per day. So it does a lot of heavy lifting as long as you understand the domain, as long as you understand the data going in, you can make machine learning work very, very hard for you. The second thing uh, is it gives you, it tells you a lot that you can't necessarily find just looking at data yourself. So it'll find nuances and relationships uh, in the data that you, you may not have really understood before. So yeah, powerful stuff. Yeah, and, and I definitely believe in the power of it, but the real-world application of it to, say, the real estate market and, and putting aside valuation models, which I think is a, is a different thing, we, we hear a lot about hotspotting. There's there's numerous experts on predicting hotspots and, and where people should be investing. What is the state of, of machine learning's ability to accurately pre predict the next markets and, and when will it overtake what human beings are able to do? I think there's always that, you know, the opportunity for a human being to, to obviously uh, look at the data that's entering machine learning and then on the other side of it, interpret what's coming out. So that's always uh, important and valuable. But what I'm finding with the machine learning, if you pick a couple of key metrics, and I'll pick on one called inventory. Inventory analysis really looks at the ratio of properties that um, are currently listed on average and how many properties are selling on average each month. And that's expressed as months of inventory. So the hypothesis there is that if no other property listed for sale, how, how many months would it take to clear what's for sale? And that's a really important key metric used in the United States. And I'm using that currently in, in a lot of the machine learning models and predicting out what it looks like in six months' time, what it looks like in 12 months' time. And it does it as a true blind test. It pretty much uses all the data as of a year ago or six months ago, cuts off at that point, projects what it looks like today. And it's been phenomenal, some of the results. So to answer your question, you know, what's the role of the human? I think there's been a lot of... Uh, gut feel that a lot of art with the headlines of late, especially in January, it's the, you know, it's the month of um, forecasts and predict yeah. predictions, you know, and soothsayers. Um, but this adds a true science because what you can say is historically it performed like this. So you, mm -hmm. can, you can literally present a statistical summary of performance over time. Now, you don't know what's going to happen between now and six months' time. There could be some things that happen that are outside of the bounds, as I like to call it. But historically, you can present some very, very hard metrics about performance of forecasting. And I think that a lot of people listening are probably going, Mike, stop asking him about how it works and tell me where is going to boom in the next six months. And <laughs> You know what, like maybe Kent will answer that question, but I'm not going to ask him now because you'll just clock off. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll save that to the end. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, um, let, let's go, let, go back a step to the automated valuation models. I mean, people would, would understand that they're out there and they work. People that don't realise that they exist probably have had properties calculated by them already by the banks. 
to what level of quality are they at? I mean, we see, uh, I think ANZ Bank came out with the, the cheeky little ad where they were at an open home and someone sort of saying, oh, it should go between this and that. That might have been the agent. And then they get on the AVM and it tells them something else and they're like, oh, well, we've got the inside running here because we know that it's going to go for more. How, how accurate are those models these days? Yeah, look, they've improved. The US has been the leader, I believe, in, in this space. Um, and they've got some good data sets around floor areas. Um, so I think the, the biggest driver now of the AVM performance going forward will be uh, access to broader data sets, such as um, you know, aerial images that are then converted to numbers for floor area, etc. Um, but equally, the ability to interrogate photos and extract some qualitative metrics. That's the future. Where, where they are today, um, they're good but not great. Um, they work best in homogenous markets with semi-homogenous houses. So if you've got a, a very unique property in an homogenous market, you'll be in trouble. Um, equally, you might have a very stock standard, bog standard homogenous house, but the market's not turning over. It could struggle in those circumstances as well. So um, there's always limitations to these, to these models. Um, but look, they've been progressively improving. The banks like to use them primarily as a QA check, but equally if it's a low risk loan, you know, low loan amount, low LVR, low risk area where the model's traditionally been performing uh, at average or higher, then they'll, they'll use them, especially for those low LVR loans. Um, so yeah, they've, they've certainly uh, improved a lot. Uh, and I probably say in the next uh, probably not the next 12 months. I'll probably go a little bit further. I reckon the next two to three years we'll see a massive step in their ability to perform because they will start to account for all the data sets available to us. will start to account for some of those uh, qualitative uh, metrics or variables, whereas most of the ABM inputs today are purely quantitative stuff, you know, lot size, uh, is it a main road? Yes, no, bed, bath, parking. Whereas, you know, the real uh, performance improvement will come from saying, uh, is it a, a well-renovated, nice-looking house or not, et cetera. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, you know, there's 200 houses on this street and only one of them is a church and the model can tell that that's a church that's been converted into a residential dwelling. So the valuation is going to be completely different to everything else on the street. Yeah, you want to knock out the weirdos. I mean, that's the thing with these models is, is when you start to get into the tails, um, whether that be, you know, lot size, tail or property style, tail or property size, that's the stuff that you don't really want to go through the models. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Let's talk about um, the property data that we hear all the time, and that's mostly core logic. And obviously, you've had to look behind the curtain there, perhaps built some of that stuff. Um, the RBA, which is, you probably heard of them, um, they're a fairly prestigious organisation, and they quote regularly, I think, Australian property mon monitors, um, core logic. I think there's probably one other one in there. So, uh, presumably, they think feel that they've got a very robust robust um, methodology. But how accurate is the reporting that they give, you know, because we're only really talking at the high level from capital cities and then all regionals. Like how much can we take to the bank that if CoreLogic says house prices, prices are up X percent, then that's accurate? 
I um, there's there's obviously concerns going too small and there's concerns going too large. Let's pick on the too small bit. Sometimes if you try and measure a suburb, you don't have enough sales. Or what sells in the last you know, few months might only be the expensive properties. And then once they've sold, the only properties left are the cheaper ones. So your medians jump all around uh, down at the suburb level. So that's that's the problem of being too small. Um, going too big, let's pick on rest of New South Wales or rest of Queensland. Big place and prices, yeah. you know, the prices in one region are going to be very, very different to the prices in others. And what's happening with COVID, perfect example, is you've got a, an exodus of, of people, not en masse, but at significant levels, getting out into the region. So the regions are booming. And uh, it's going to play havoc with some of those rest-ofs, um, you know, the greater capital city type metrics. So grouping together the regions can have some problems as a result of compositional bias. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit of a problem. And typically what the indices like the hedonic index seeks to do is to value the same property through time. So it generally accounts for those compositional problems. So that's the objective of the hedonic index. I like to use something called a statistical area level three, SA3, another uh, acronym. I've got plenty of acronym, acronyms, if you like. <laughs> um, but the Australian Bureau of Statistics, or ABS, uh, they've got something called the statistical area level three, and they do all these building blocks of areas or locations that they divulge all of their census information. And the sweet spot or the Goldilocks size area for me is the SA3. So in, I'll pick on Newcastle. You're probably familiar with Newcastle. Uh, very similar in size. The SA3 for Newcastle, very similar in size to the local government area. But if we go north up to, say, Brisbane, you've probably heard of Brisbane, it's a massive LGA the size of a city. Mm. And, and if you if you try and do metrics or apply metrics at that uh, LGA level up there, it's too big. So looking to the SA3 as an alternative, you've carved up the whole of Brisbane in multiple SA3. So it's a it's a very nice Goldilocks metric that is a very handy way to measure market growth. So I think the problem is you've got, going back to your, your, your question about uh, aggregating at a greater capital city, um, more often than not, it behaves and using medians or using an hedonic index at that level generally works fine except when it doesn't. And the situation at the moment with the COVID, with people moving out, we are going to face some compositional bias and it's going to throw some metrics out in my humble view. When, when we talk about SA3, perhaps if we can use Sydney as an example, would an SA3 area be, say, like from from Bondi Beach through to the CBD or would that be too big? That's a bit too big. So what they've done in the eastern suburbs, it's split into two, so eastern suburbs north and eastern suburbs south. So I think the line might be drawn at, say, I think it's um, uh, uh, Clavelli Road, for example. It yeah, might right. be a little bit further. So, um, so it, And then it pushes up towards Potts Point. Yeah. So um, I don't have the map in front of me, but it's just from memory. So there's two distinct uh, SA3s that represent the broader eastern suburbs of Sydney. Is there anything that investors can do from a targeting um, data point of view? I mean, an obvious example is is there are people that have the philosophy that they always like to buy under the median. Yeah. Now, you've already said that the median is 
a little bit of a tricky thing because it can go up and down if you know if if the true median is let's say half a million dollars and a couple of two million dollar places sell in quick succession then the median can be you know can be 800 for a period i'm guessing yes but is there anything for investors to be looking at data like that and, and looking to, for these sweet spots that they can get good results with? Yeah, I often think the, the sweet spot is better found by looking at it as a, a decile ranking. So it's a similar, if not same principle, but expressed slightly differently is, you know, the person trying to buy below the median is likely doing that for a couple of reasons. One is uh, they don't want to buy something is at that top end of the market where there's really not a lot of room for growth. Uh, it's a very small market. So if you're picking something that's in the top 10% or the top decile rank in a given suburb, uh, it's a bit of a risky play, especially if you want to renovate because you could overcapitalise, et cetera. Um, whereas the sweet spot of demand is usually, and you know, statistically, it's in the middle. Uh, but if you buy at the lower decile ranks, then there's a lot more room to, to move, generally speaking. But if the, you know, a lot of those lower decile ranks represent main roads and there, there can be reasons why they're the lower decile ranks. Um, so one of the key metrics I do like to, to talk to are uh, price, segmenta- price segmentation uh, or price segments at a suburb level uh, and know where you sit relative to the broader market. So uh, you want to understand and know that there is a market for your, for your property if you're looking to sell it again. Yeah. And the people that are looking to buy below the median or if we use these um you know the the price segmentation the idea is that the demand is always higher at those lower price points right because you've got first homeowners you've got investors whereas if you start getting up in the top 10% there's there's less people with the money to spend on that type of property um i think generally speaking you'll find uh, from purely from a statistical perspective, the correct answer to that would be the bulk of the demands around the median. Right. That's, that's where most of the properties are sold. That's why it's the median. Um, but demand at the lower end, effectively, you know, they, those, those lower end properties, um, again, all things equal, that could represent lower value properties that will always be proportionately lower value because they're on a, a main road. Um, but equally, that could be where your unrenovated properties are as well. Yep. So um, that's a, an interesting way to look at it. Let's talk about the metrics that are of, of most use to a property investor that's wanting to do a little bit of their own research. And, of course, there are some free tools out there where they can look at different um, metrics. I know that you particularly like looking at uh, vacancy rates and inventory, which we talked about. Is there anything else that an investor can look at to see whether that property market is is either in demand or likely to become in demand? Yeah, I, I like to. There's a few key metrics I like, um, as in what are they today in absolute terms, but equally the trend lines are always very, very important. Some of the key metrics I like, you know, obviously yield's important if you're, you're looking at a, an investment property, but specifically what I like to call out there is um, medians be careful with because they're often expressed as the median house price and the median rent price. If you're buying a property above or below the median, your yield is going to be different. So one trick uh, to, to use there is to look at the median of a one-bedroom or a two-bedroom or a three-bedroom unit as an example, and then compare that to the rent at a one-bedroom, two-bedroom, three-bedroom level. And that can sometimes give you a much broader uh, 
spread of yields. And often, you know, as you can probably uh, know, that the, the lower price properties or the smaller properties are often offering you a higher yield. So that's probably number one trick from an investor's perspective, um, and especially if cash flow is one of your higher uh, priorities. Uh, I certainly like to look at the trend of yield. I like to look at uh, vacancy rates, but equally, I like to balance that by looking at the absolute count or how many properties are vacant. So it's one of the same, but it's expressed slightly differently. One is the count of properties that have been vacant for 21 days or more. And why I like that is there's a practical uh, approach to this is you can say, well, if, if there's that many properties that are vacant, how many of those are likely to start discounting? How many of those are likely to jump out of the rental market and be listed for sale? So it's a, a mm. nice way to counter just looking at a percentage. And then you start to look at it through a different set of glasses and it gives you a, a, an interesting dimension to it um, because that represents a number of landlords that are hurting right now. Um, so I like looking at that as well. Inventory, we've covered that, but certainly I like to look at the trend line of inventory. So it's really important. What was it a year ago? What was it two years ago? So that's you know, months of inventory. So that's a, that's a biggie. Days of market has a strong correlation with inventory, but not always. And you'll find specifically in a lot of house and land areas, days on market is, is very different to inventory. So your inventory will uncover a much higher risk in a lot of house and land areas than days on market will. So I like to look at both days on market and inventory at the same time. And d days on market obviously just means that this is how long it's taking to sell the property. But the in the, the people that are selling these developments, they're staging them because they don't want any discounting due to an oversupply. Does the inventory thing sort of see some of that secret source? It, it, well, it, it counts the listing. And typically, what the, one of the limitations we have with a lot of the house and land listings is that they're virtual houses they're a block of dirt with a, a rendered image of a house in more more in most often um, mm. the other issue is that the holding costs for a property developer are, are pretty low it's just a, a rendered image of a house and a, and a block of dirt so they can hold the property for a long time and they can drip feed it onto the market and control the price which is fantastic for them not good in these markets if you're a uh, if you're competing with those new developers and you're forced to sell. And you'll find anybody looking at some of these house and land areas can scroll through the listings and find the property that is actually a secondary market house, uh, a property that's been lived in and owned for a year or two or more. And you'll see more often than not that um, they've been there for a long time. The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. Yeah. Are there any sort of immutable laws that you've observed within the real estate market? Let's say one thing that I've observed is um, when we're talking about, say, tax depreciation schedules, which is a thing that we do, we notice that um, 
if we're wanting to do more of those, we want more turnover, right? So we want houses um, being bought and sold. Um, we kind of think, well, it doesn't really matter if the market's going up or down, but if the market is going up, there's a correlation with um, with turnover, with transactions, right? Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you can sort of point to in the real estate market as being a, a truism in that if this is happening, then there's heat in the market or the market's going up? I think the, the there are some strong lead indicators um, that are emerging, but they do vary by region. So, the, you know, the, there are some rules that, that apply in some markets and not others. And we, we're finding uh, at the moment that um, higher density areas uh, have some very, very different rules. So, for example, if you're seeing vacancy rates rising in some high density areas, you, you will expect that that will have a flow-on effect to, to prices eventually. So that, that's interesting. Um, probably another thing just on that note that you, you were talking about volumes is um, you know, the, the, vol- the amount of volumes that have you know, the, dropped down, I think, year on year by at least 10% for the last three years. So volumes are down, and that's a big driver of, uh, of uh, inventory levels. And what we are yet to see is the true impact of what, you know, if the market could return to normal listings volumes, uh, what that will look like. But um, I would I would argue that the, the, the biggest uh, law that's out there is you know, areas that are have high inventory levels that are building, it will lead to a, a decrease in price or a, a, you know, pressure on prices going down when inventory levels are seven months or higher and building. That, I'm glad you said that because that was my, my next question is that we can go on to um, property nerds or suburb trends or, or, or other similar style things. Um, I shouldn't say that because I know no, you're so just, just go to the property <laughs> nerds. If you're an investor, you go to the property nerds, the data hub. It's all free. There you go. But we could look at that and say, okay, well, inventory is at four months. It's at 12 months. It's at 36 months. How do we know whether that is an indication of it being a tight market that's likely to go up or a fairly sort of uncompetitive market. But you're saying that seven months' worth of inventory is about the sort of par level? I would say, uh, based on my uh, analysis, um, what I've found in Australia, I'll use the term equilibrium. I know a lot of people don't like it, but that balance, that point of balance or equilibrium is around the seven-month mark. Um, where that will have a, a, a downward pressure on price and you will see a significant shift in price within four to five months. Right. So that's what I found. Now, the US have done the same thing and their equilibrium point is about six months and the correlation between uh, inventory and price change is a bit tighter than what we've, what we've got in Australia. So it's a neater fit over there, but it's the same principle. Inventory sort of speaks to me as a as a metric because it's supply and demand, yeah. right? I mean, it's like the it's the closest you can sort of put your finger on the pulse of supply and demand. Why ha- have I only started hearing about inventory since I started following you, Kent? Um, the the Americans have been using it extensively for years and years, and I adopted it here because of my trips to America um, in the in the early days. Uh, with Gemworth and then subsequently with CoreLogic. So uh, it was a lead metric used over there by by banks, by the Appraisal Institute. It's the go-to. And the fact that we haven't adopted it here, I cannot answer why. I think we're, we're crazy. So uh, I 
I didn't need anyone's permission to do it. I just did it and I've adopted it and I'm <laughs> promoting it. <laughs> well, if it hasn't broken already, it's now on the Geared for Growth Property Investing podcast. So uh, inventory <laughs> is, is the new normal. So for, for investors that are perhaps reading newspapers, which is maybe a mistake, um, they can they can see quite a lot of data. I mean, you, you look at realestate.com and domain, you can see, you know, what percentage of people are certain religions, how many people are in the house, you know. Mm-hmm. We've gone crazy with the data that we're we're putting on these real estate sites. How much of that do you think is is of value, and or does it just come down to a couple of key metrics like we discussed before? Oh, I think increasing. I'm watching. I'll pick on REA. I've, I've seen that they've really lifted their game in the last year. So some of the, the metrics coming up from them and some of the uh, the, the, the media uh, releases, etc., and the research is is looking better and better. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll tip my hat there. I think that they're doing a great job. Um, I would I would say um, the biggest concern I've got with media um, would be the the journalist that has a headline and then seeks to get people like me to write content to match the headline, and that's a common practice. And uh, you know, so thereafter, uh, click throughs or you know, it's all about clickbait and and you know, sensationalism. That's the biggest concern. Yeah, and and some some publications that before getting slightly involved in real estate media, I would have considered as quite prestigious and uh, academic. I've got to say myself that it's not as robust as the property investor reading would would hope, right? Yeah. So where do we go if we want the truth? Well, that's and that's the problem. I think that a lot of the the big mastheads, the big media companies, it is all about clickbait. You know, just competing for highballs, and the truth is a you know secondary objective. I think we should all call that out. Um, so I think for for investors, uh, they probably need to focus on podcasts like this because it's not a thirty second you know clip. You can get some detailed insights through podcasts like yours. I think that's the way to go. Um, you know, a news headline won't cut it. Uh, it's unfortunate you've said that because I've scribbled down here. My clickbait title for this episode is Kent Lardner predicts predicts eighty percent growth in twenty twenty one. Damn! But <laughs> but of course you're going to have to listen to the to the podcast to realise that I've just um, tricked you into into clicking on it. But yeah, I, I mean you're right. It, it, it's absolutely crazy. I mean my episodes are normally titled Episode X Y Z with <laughs> Kent Lardner, so <laughs> there's no giveaway at all. But I, I, I do sympathise with the property investor as an absolute quagmire out there. So now that we can go to these these tools online and see what the vacancy rates are and the inventory levels levels are, is there anything that you would sort of caution people from just using those things to go, all right, well, this one's got, this suburb's got four months of int- inventory and the vacancy rate is, you know, 0.8% um, and the median's been going up or the SA3 has been going up. Like, is there anything you would caution people to say, look, you've got to understand a little bit more about the region or you've got to do some extra due diligence? I think the biggest single concern is people looking at medians as a, an indicator of future growth and especially when they're looking at suburb-level medians in a league table. You know, here are the top 10 performing suburbs 
over the last 12 months. These are the hot spots. That's still going on now. So I'd say if I were to call out one thing to avoid, if you see these uh, top 10 lists based on median growth over the last 12 months, especially if it's done at a suburb level, ignore it. Um, so that, that would be my number one thing. I think the other, the number one thing I'd like people to do is just to understand uh, what inventory level means. There's some good um, research on it in the US, so you can go and look at some uh, authoritative sites that cover the topic there. Um, but I think inventory is a terrific metric. So understand understand what it means and look at the trend lines. I think also don't just read what the current static uh, metric is, whatever that might be, but look at the trend line over time. What are the limitations of, of inventory? Uh, there's a time horizon where it, it has a value, but let, let's say we're wanting to, we, we, we've got property A or property B and one's looking better from an inventory trend line, but our net, our real goal is the highest value in 20 years. Like how far out can we go? Yeah, look, I think that the first thing you've got to do with any metric is understand you know, the data and the measuring system and what are the flaws in the data, what are the flaws in the measuring system. So I think that's the, the number one thing. It's hard for, for the average punter to know that, but you know, my role is to talk to those limitations. And I'll probably say the number one thing to look at is um, if if there's a, a small sample size, these things can bounce around a lot. So that's the problem with suburb-level inventory often, especially when there's very low sales volume. So it's not necessarily a reliable indicator when your sample sizes are really small. Once you start to get to a suburb that's got half decent turnover or you're measuring a region like the SA3, it certainly looks a lot more robust. Um, the way it typically works, the way I do it, uh, I look at the average number of properties for sale on any given day through the month. So what would be the typical day during the month and then what we do is we look at the average number of sales per month looking historically. And so there's a couple of limitations in that. One of those is, well, we're looking at historical data. Things could change pretty rapidly in the next month or two. So that's the call out. You know, we never know what's around the corner. Uh, often, more often than not, you know, the, the past is a pretty damn good predictor of what's going to happen in the future, especially if you fit a, a long-term trend line. But it, it is never, ever gospel. You know, we never know. So I think just as long as you call out some of those things and, you know, to your point about the media, sometimes they don't talk about it in nuances. Um, they don't put any disclaimers in. It's all just, you know, treated as, um, as a rule. Yeah. And uh, I certainly don't crunch data to your um, level, Kent, but I absolutely love it. And, and we've shared um, a lot of analysis on the data points that we collect. And the first thing that I learned is that, everything sort of needs an asterisk because we have to say, okay, well, this excludes outliers because, you know, we might have done a report where they only wanted to do the Division 43 of a, of the granny flat section of the house sort of thing. So this, the, the deeper you go, the more you realise, well, you've got, to, you've got to keep that in, you've got to drop that out. There's never a blanket sort of data set. Yeah, you don't want to blind people with the detail because they will, you know, fall asleep. I've read some of your disclaimers, uh, Kent, yeah, and they're very handy right. around 11 p.m. Yeah, yeah. So if you really, <laughs> if you do want to fall asleep, talk to me for about an hour. Um, but I, look, I, we, one thing they teach you straight up in 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 the statistics courses is you need these flowery um, assumptions to be made um, about 
um, the data and the model that you, you, you're building. So that's going to ingrain in a lot of people who study statistics. They, they, they understand the limitations. But I'll probably go a little bit further than that and say, once you're playing with this data, if you're the person trying to collect and massage the data, you see that property data especially is a dirty game. You know, there's a lot of rubbish data. So you, you're very cynical at all, all points. You always need to question, you know, how good is it and what are, what are its limitations? But by the time you're presenting something in a finished product, the biggest problem we've got is that we're presenting stuff in a better and better fashion as time goes on. We're using products like Flourish for data visualizations, et cetera. So, you know, what was a, a basic PowerPoint presentation uh, five years ago was now turned into these beautiful dynamic charts and whatnot. And what that does is I think it creates a false set, set sense of confidence in, in the data as well. So you really, really, I think more than ever, we need to be careful about what we're looking at and scratch the surface. I, I can, couldn't agree more. However, I'm now going to go in a direction where we're throwing <laughs> caution <laughs> out the window, and that's Kent Lardner's top hotspot picks for 2021. I mean, I, I referenced it about, I don't know, 13 minutes in that um, I wasn't going to ask you, you know, where investors should be looking. But are, are there any things that you've seen in your data that, you know, point to regions of the country where you're thinking, look, gosh, that has some good potential in the next little while? Well, it's already out there. We can already see where these markets are, are doing quite well. Um, if I were to kind of make a blanket statement of where things are going well, there's an exodus of people from uh, small small properties to larger properties because of the work from home movement. There's an exodus of some people from the city into the regions because they uh, believe now that they can work from home or use Zoom. And it doesn't take a massive number of people from a city to exit to have a massive impact on some of these smaller regions. So I would, at, a, at a, a very high level, I would say some of the uh, commutable lifestyle locations in and around the cities are doing quite well and will continue to do well based on what I can see. Newcastle is one of those areas. Gosford's one of those areas in the Central Coast. The Blue Mountains is doing quite well, same thing. Um, equally, you know, you get down uh, Mornington Peninsula. So it's, 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 it's those areas that are within two to three hours of the, of the cities uh, that have all of those um, you know, facilities that you would look for and affordability, they seem to be doing quite well. Um, the other interesting areas I'm finding is the, the um, Sutherland area in and around Sydney is doing quite well because, uh, and I, I probably would say the reason being is you, you're squeezed out of the eastern suburbs, prices have surged there, therefore they went up to the northern beaches. Northern Beaches has been going crazy for the last two years. You can't find stock there and it's expensive now. So where do they go? They're now down on the south side. So I think that's what's happening in, in Sydney. People are being squeezed here, there and everywhere. So I think the, the interesting thing too is I, I, I looked at the suburbs that had the higher, um, med uh, higher median count of bedrooms. So I separated all the suburbs that had a three-bedroom median and all the suburbs that had a four-bedroom median and then compared their growth rates and their prices, and there was a very distinct difference between the four and the three. So that supported, there was a you know, little bit of evidence to support the hypothesis that people are looking for larger properties because they don't want to be in a one-bedroom property in, the, in Melbourne. Uh, they'd rather be in a three- or a four-bedroom house for the home office. 
That's a very, very interesting insight. And I'm looking on um, some data that I've stuck on my wall, which shows that the uh, the average floor area of a house has gone up 12.6% over the last four years from all of our investor data. So, I mean, that's a bit different thing because these aren't necessarily owner-occupied. I mean, a quarter of them are according to our data. But, yeah, very interesting to drill down on the, on the sort of um, the makeup of the property and, and how that affects the value because we're so used to just going, you know, this suburb or this city is up this amount. <laughs> there's, there's markets within markets and then there's properties within streets, isn't there? Oh, exactly. Exactly. I, I always, you know, so people kind of say the Sydney market um, <laughs> and it drives me crazy. You know, there's there's uh, markets within suburbs and uh, I think you, the property experts know that, but a lot of investors don't. I think it's a really important thing to call out. That's a good segue into our final question, Kent, which is if there's one piece of advice you can give to property investors, what would that be? I would advise them to, to consider using a buyer's agent. No, that would be because I've been burned, I've made my own mistakes and I've seen so many mistakes, especially with people exiting the cities. Um, the, the local buyers agents on the ground who understand where and where not to buy could save you a lot of time and a lot of money. And the really interesting thing to observe is, is that buyers agents are clever most of them and the cleverest ones are engaging people like yourself to help them with the statistical analysis and they bring their negotiation skill set to the table backed by data and science and that makes them a, a, a dangerous proposition right yeah I'm, I'm really enjoying some of the relationships i'm building with buyers agents because they love property and this they're, they're of a certain persona that loves the data as well so you know i'm building some not just customers but some really good friendships with buyers agents so yes i'm 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 a bit of a fan ken it's been uh it's been a blast having you thanks very much for for joining me today and sharing your wisdom i love it sharing the mic with mike it's been great thank you <laughs> good on you ken bye